0: The news is not in the business of informing you. If they were in the business of informing people, people would then become informed and then they wouldn't watch the news anymore. <laughs> so it's it's realizing that the business of the news is to get you to continue watching the news. Like your phone's job is not to... Solve your problems. Your phone is to become the ongoing way of managing your problems, right? In the way that, like, methadone isn't supposed to get you off of heroin, it's supposed to get you on to methadone. So, realizing that the job of the news is to always be developing, always be breaking, but never actually get to the final conclusion where you are informed was really helpful to me because then I go, oh, okay. I'm not going to follow the news to know what's happening. I'm going to look actually backwards towards history, and I'm not going to let the news rile me up or make me think the world is ending or ruin my day. I'm going to decide where I get my information and why.
1: That is best-selling author, founder of the company Brass Check, and marketing guru, Ryan Holiday. And this is episode 311 of Better Than Yesterday. Better
2: Than Yesterday
1: Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 311 of the show with author, marketing guru, founder of the company Brass Check, swimmer, farmer, father, Ryan Holiday. You can find Ryan online. He's uh, at Twitter and Instagram at Ryan Holiday, R-Y-A-N, Holiday, and RyanHoliday.net, more about Ryan and a check in a tick. (laughs) If you're new, g'day, welcome. I'm Osha Ginsberg. I'm a TV uh, radio podcast book guy from uh, Sydney, Australia. And uh, this podcast is uh, simply a conversation designed to help you make today a bit better than yesterday. No matter what, in the next hour and a bit, you'll hear something that'll make you think, oh, I never considered that. And as a result, today, a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. That's all we are here to do. Thank you very much to all and sundry who reached out during the week to check on me. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. I can't tell you how grateful I am that you did so, including the very good people at the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal who actually said that a bunch of new donations came in this week that cited this very podcast uh, when you tick the box, how'd you hear about them? So if uh, the fact that most of the East Coast of Australia is on fire and you don't know what to do is bothering you, uh, you can go to frrr.org.au. F-R-R-R, three R's, frrr.org.au. Yeah, I don't know how to protect our inland communities from climate change, but they know a lot more about it than I do. Uh, and they need our help right now. A big thanks to everyone that emailed through the week, send us your email at gmail.com. It's great to hear from you. Great to see where you're listening to the show as well. I love the pictures that you send me. Just shoot a photo of what you're looking at and send it to me, send us your email at gmail.com. Um, thanks very much to Selvin who just wanted to say your podcast have been super helpful for me, especially your check-ins. My wife and I recently had our first baby. Congratulations. And while I was settling baby yesterday, for the first time I played your check-in for both my wife and baby, she only knows you from Bachelor. She says, become a fan of yours and started following you on Instagram. Good timing with Wolfgang and your dad pod, podcast. Really wanted to say thanks for all you do and sharing your anxiety struggles helped immensely. Thanks, mate. Oh, that's super kind of you. Thank you so much. Great one from Luke. Our mate Luke in the Central West. Listening to your check-in, sorry to hear the weather events have set you off a bit. I thought you, I could send, he calls them his, set off your fears. He, he calls them spidey senses. Oh yeah, that makes sense. I thought I could send you a cheer up as I was feeding my sheep. I laughed when I saw what they did to a bale of hay. It's quite a sculpture. I think this angle shows off the symmetry best. Uh, just heard you're having Ryan Holiday on the Monday show. He wrote a great book on stoicism. Yes, he did. Uh, and Luke has sent this great picture of a, a, what a bale of hay looks like after a, a bunch of sheep have been down it. And they've essentially, it looks like it's carved into something that you'd see in the Moab Desert down in Utah or, or something in a Roadrunner cartoon. It's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty rad. They've actually eaten the bottom right off of it and left the, this table top. One came in from Bridget who sent a view in. This is a view from my verandah. She's in Warhope in New South Wales. I wish this view in the photograph was missed. Unfortunately, it's smoke from the hundreds of fire that are surrounding our little town right now. I live about 200 metres from the area command centre, hundreds of heroes protecting us. Our family and friends have been directly affected by these fires with lots of loss of property. We've been told this is the new normal for our area. It's frightening when burning leaves are falling around our 130-year-old historic home. We must learn to be resilient in these times, and I'm always reminding myself of the wonderful things in my life and learn to accept these conditions. Hopefully, the next picture will be more cheerful. Thanks for your hard work and understanding. Crikey. And um, to round off, uh, a great one came in from um, Isaac. Is riding a bicycle through the country and um, he sent me a check-in podsy of one, two, three, four, five massive wind turbines. And um, he then, uh, I emailed back and said, mate, I really needed to see that. Thanks very much. And then <laughs> the next photo he sent me is like, he's climbed up one of them because <laughs> he works. I think he works in the wind industry. And it's a, it's a view across the, the beautiful landscape of these incredible wind turbines atop a hill. Keep your head up and keep doing what you're doing. Thanks very much, man. I really appreciate you sending that through very, very much. A huge thanks to those who listened to the Bo Ryan episode. Uh, If you haven't heard it, it was on uh, last week. It was a really important conversation to have. I'm really grateful that he and I got to have it together. As always, if you want to help this show, you can rate, you can review, you subscribe wherever you can rate, review, and subscribe to this show. And just recommend it to other people. Just tell other people to listen to it. Um, That's the best thing you can do for us. so let me tell you about my guest today ryan holiday is an author marketing genius founder of the consultancy company brass check father farmer swimmer tattoo aficionado and he's based in austin texas Though I didn't know it at the time, I first became aware of his work when he was in charge of marketing for the now largely defunct but hugely influential American clothing brand, American Apparel. And it was later when I read his brilliant book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator, that he came to reveal exactly how he pulled off the things he pulled off while he worked for American Apparel and indeed then how easily it was to manipulate the media. It was then that I gained a scope of how easily what we see and hear and then feel and then decide upon can be so easily dictated to us by outside sources under the guise of legitimate news. Ryan has had a long fascination with stoic philosophy and his best-selling books, The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, and the new number one New York Times best-selling book, Stillness is the Key, most definitely opened me up to a different way of thinking about the world and a world that i often struggle with as you are no doubt aware via his daily updates on the daily stoic and daily stoic and now his excellent daily fatherhood email which i love the daily dad ryan is a prolific writer and thinker someone who's wise beyond his years and a person that i definitely aspire to emulate when it comes to a calm way of observing the world This particular podcast, this conversation has been years in the making. So I I really have to thank two really important people in my life, both uh, US serial entrepreneur Manish Sethi and the Australian entrepreneur and author Pete Williams for forming a two pronged connection when it came to looping me into Ryan's orbit that allowed me to get onto his radar and certainly back on his radar around the release of this new book. So, gentlemen, thank you so much. We made it happen. If you've never heard of Ryan Holiday before, strap in. his wisdom and his depth of knowledge is simply staggering. His way of speaking and constructing a rational view of reality devoid of emotional distortion is something to truly behold, and there's a great freedom in the way he goes about the world. I couldn't be more grateful for his time to dive in real deep on what Ryan is all about ryanholiday.net or at ryanholiday on twitter and instagram the new book is called stillness is the key it is a cracking read so without further ado please welcome over the internet from austin texas ryan holiday hey ryan how you going man doing excellent how are you (laughs) yeah i'm great it's great to finally talk to you yeah, it's good to talk to you too. Honestly, the other week I was very jealous when I heard that you were running with Rich because uh, when I lived in LA, I used to go running with Rich a bit and um, I do miss that.
0: Oh, he's the best, man. He's the best. A couple of hours
1: with him and you're like, Wah. I mean, honestly, he does go slow for you, which is nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, I thought I was going to get destroyed, but he was, uh, he was thankfully quite uh, accommodating. I think I think he likes it when he he just goes. I'll just put this a reco- I'll just make this a recovery run. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: great. Oh, he's on his his epic epic thing, mate. I'm stoked to talk to you. I've been a I've been a fan of your work since. Trust me, I'm lying. Confessions of oh, a man. of a media manipulator, and um, I'm really grateful that I read that book early enough to start looking at the media news cycle in a different way. And it, and it really did allow me to see the news, particularly political news, for what it is more and more, and to then go on to digest things like Brexit and the 2016 US election with, with a bit more clarity. And, you know, before we get into Stillness, which is the, the new book and the brilliant stuff around the dad, Daily Dad, which I love, when you think about what you learned about and how malleable the, many, the media landscape is was when you wrote that book to what it's become now. And indeed, as we head to the 2020 election in the USA, when you think about where it was, what it's become and where it's going, what, what do you think?
0: Well, w- one of the things I take from it that's been quite freeing is that it, the news is not in the business of informing you. If they were in the business of informing people, people would then become informed and then they wouldn't watch the news anymore. <laughs> so it's it's realizing that the business of the news is to get you to continue watching the news. Like your phone's job is not to solve your problems. Your Your phone is to become the ongoing way of managing your problems, right? In the way that like methadone isn't supposed to get you off of of heroin, it's supposed to get you on to methadone. So realizing that the job of the news is to always be developing, always be breaking, but never actually get to the final conclusion where you are informed was really helpful to me because then I go, oh, okay. Okay. I'm not going to follow the news to know what's happening. I'm going to look actually backwards towards history, and I'm not going to let the news rile me up or make me think the world is ending or ruin my day, and to, that I'm going to be very intentional about the news that I consume and why I'm consuming it and, and all of that. So I think, uh, on the one hand, it, it, it's sort of disillusioning. You go, oh, the Fourth Estate isn't this wonderful, pure, you know, selfless institution. The Fourth Estate is actually a multi-billion dollar industry with a lot of people trying to make names for themselves, that's a little disillusioning. But, but the empowering part is realizing like, oh, okay, I don't have to be dependent on this thing. I don't have to let it ruin my life. I don't have to let it consume my life. I'm going to decide where I get my information and why.
1: Okay. So, so, so two things there. Firstly, when you say you look back on history, when you do look back on history, what does that tell you about the coming months and, and years
0: ahead? I think someone who, who's grounded in history in a weird way, it turns down the volume on a lot of the stuff that doesn't matter right now. And then it turns up the volume on a lot of the really alarming stuff that is happening. Right. So like when I, I I don't get that upset that, you know, Donald Trump tweeted this or that. I'm trying to be as unpolitical about this as possible. I just mean, like, when you look at it, you go, wow, this guy has like talked a lot of things and promised a lot of things, but essentially accomplished nothing. Like his legislative uh, accomplishments are very minimal in a weird way. That's what actually alarms me that here's this guy who gets elected with two, you know, a majority in both houses on an agenda that a lot of people agree with, and he actually manages to accomplish like nothing. Um, when I look back at like a, you know, a republic like Rome, what brings Julius Caesar to power is not simply that he had this you know, sort of lust and greed to be in control. What allowed him to realize those two things was that Rome didn't seem to be working. The old way that other people were trying to preserve, as right as they were, was stymied and stuck. And so when I when I see where we are now, I don't go like, oh, Donald Trump is Julius Caesar. I think more, if this system doesn't get unstuck, if we're not able to come up with real solutions to a lot of the problems that we face that Donald Trump is kind of a symptom of, somebody even worse than him is gonna come along and actually be a lot more competent or controlled and adept, and we're gonna be in real trouble. It's
1: interesting that you talk about that because, you know, when you look at And as impartial as it can be, you you talk of Trump being a symptom of a system that isn't working very well. One could argue that this similar system was allowed someone like Reagan to do what he did for eight years and essentially just forget things and have Nancy go, we're doing what we can. (laughs) Like there's press conferences of Reagan is going, we're doing what we can as an answer to every question because he couldn't actually, he would tell war stories that he saw in movies as if they were real, you know, but we're still the president and things were going along just fine and the idea Idea, as you just mentioned, that someone could be then put into that position who is, as you say, far more confident, like a, as charismatic as Obama, but not a nice human in his heart. Yeah, is, is well, it's, we're right for that.
0: It's been a weird thing with some of my books, but my my books have sort of made their way through American politics, and so every once in a while, I'll go to Washington D.C. and I'll have you know breakfast or lunch with someone. And I, I was having breakfast with a pretty well-known senator, and probably not known internationally, but definitely one of the the better known american senators and and he was like look like if trump knew what he was doing i think he and his family could rule this country for the next 20 years like he yeah, was saying right. this as an alarmed thing like not that he wanted this to happen but the point was like things are so fractured and so stuck it, in a way and again we probably in a, we could talk about this all day but the, yeah. the trump's ego in a weird way has been the ultimate check and balance like he's sort of actually not able to figure out how the system works and use it to his advantage. He's very good at the marketing and controlling the messaging and sucking all the attention out of the media system for himself. But the actual nuts and bolts of, of legislation uh, and, and the levers of power that, in the way that someone like a Lyndon Johnson or an FDR was able to realize a good chunk of their agenda. Again, you can totally disagree with their agenda. It's hard to argue that they were not able to realize a lot of it, yeah. which is all to say that when, when you study these things historically, you're able to not get as distracted by the sort of day-to-day developments of, oh, did someone say this? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, did this piece of information come out? And you're, you're able to go like, okay, there, there's a fascinating book I, I read called Tyrant, which was is by Stephen Greenblatt. And he was looking at the Shakespearean villains' of all of Shakespeare's plays. And when you read a book like that, you're able to sort of make connections to the different personality types uh, of our time. And you're, you're reading it through the insights of someone who obviously was not alive for any of this, yeah. but human beings are human beings and we've kind of always done the same things.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so one more thing, then we'll get to it. Uh, so when you say the system is broken, the system is failing through your, your, your look at history and your look at various you know ways that humans have figured out how to govern massive amounts of people, what would need to change or what's a change that you think would take us in a more positive direction?
0: I think what people misunderstand about the American system is that we think it's sort of three equal branches, and it's not really supposed to be three equal branches. It's three very different branches of government that that operate each with their own function. And so, in my opinion, the Congress is supposed to legislate, to pass and create the laws. The president is supposed to execute those laws, and the judiciary is supposed to check those laws against constitutionality and some other legalistic concerns. But right now the legislative body in America essentially passes almost no laws and takes almost no active role in solving the problems that the country faces, whether it's economic or, or international or immigration. So like what, what you're seeing is the president deciding to sign executive orders to address these big crises right. which congress should be doing and then you see the those things because they're controversial and and there's not necessarily a majority behind them, you see those things go to the courts, which then become super politicized. So instead of gay marriage being a law passed either in each individual state or at the federal level, what's happening is these things are being fought in the courts and with these narrow majorities. And so basically everyone's upset. The legislative function in the United States is that nobody ever has a majority and to pass things, you need a majority. So there it's supposed to create incentives for compromise and sort of pretty good, you know, things that satisfy both parties. And instead we've, we've started to think that it's like you elect your, the president for your side. And then he forces things down the throat of everyone who's on the other side. And then you've stacked the court and then the court, backs you up. And it's like, no, you're supposed to elect representatives. Those representatives are supposed to get together, pass laws that solve the problems, the president executes the laws, and then the court is a check against yeah. both of those two uh, other branches. And then the media is supposed to be the one effectively communicating and reminding and and clarifying all of this and basically of the four sides None of them are doing their job properly. And so that when I say the system's not working, I don't mean like democracy is not the system. I just mean it's like, you know, we have a sports team and nobody is playing their position properly, <laughs> but has a has really strong opinions about. How everyone else is doing.
1: It's not exactly the same. Our system of government here is is different. We have the Westminster system here in Australia, but there are there are similarities. There are definitely similarities between what our democracy in Australia has become, and uh, to the point where our our media. uh, We don't have a a right to freedom of speech uh, as you do in America and um, North America, and you know there are. Enormous threats against the um, press freedoms in this country around reporting, particularly around things like refugees, around climate change, around dollars, around you know lobbyists and mining companies and things like that, and it's it's frightening to be honest, and to the point where, as well, they're they're making forms of protest illegal. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I know, right? Uh, But, you know, hey, fucking throw another shrimp on the barbie, mate, everything's sweet, (laughs) mate. Don't even worry about it, Ryan.
0: (laughs) No. Well, well, look, like, I I know less about Australian politics, but I think Brexit's a great example when we talk about people not doing their job. The idea that some – like the whole point of of none of these countries being sort of pure democracies is to prevent nightmares like Brexit, yeah. which is – the people just give you a general policy, right, and say this is – like what Cameron did where he throws like, hey, should we stay in the EU or not to the people was a complete abdication of his responsibilities and for Parliament as well. And now – so what happened was he was like, hey, should we stay or should we go? And people were like, Go. And then, you know, now tasked with essentially an impossible task, people are frantically figuring out how to try to do it. That's just not how it's supposed to go. And, you know, I think we're seeing different versions of this in different countries. And then and then the people take to the streets or people check out. It's like it's just a disaster on on all ends. I guess the, the final thing I would say is also, though historically, if you really study history, and if you sort sure of study the kinds of things I write about in, in Stoicism, is you zoom out far enough and you go, none of this really matters. <laughs> like it's, it's gonna, it's gonna go where it's gonna go. People have been fighting and arguing and thinking that the system is tearing itself apart for basically all of recorded human history. And to get too worried or too worked up, or to be too anxious about it is to one, assign too much importance to it, but two, to believe you have more control over it than you actually do. So that's the other thing is even with what I'm saying, day to day, this affects my reality almost not at all. So I try to just focus on like, hey, Am I being nice to the person sitting next to me on the train? You know, am I being a good neighbor? Am I picking up trash when I see it on the side of the road? Am I being a good husband? Am I being a good father? Am I focused my energy on being good at my job? You know, that's ultimately what I think the historical perspective gives you is like, okay, it's been going on like this for a long time it's going to go on like this for a long time. Let's try to calm down a little bit. We have only been talking for a little while, maybe
1: 13, 14 minutes, but already like, I am uh, aware of that we have kind of fallen into something that you have talked about in the book. Um, still, this is the key the, the CNN effect by just blathering on about stuff that's confronting for so long, people just go, ah! Totally. <laughs> totally. Uh, th- it's an interesting thing to you know to have a psychological effect named after a, a television channel. Could you talk a little bit about that, please?
0: Yeah. So the CNN effect is what they found was popping up right around the time CNN comes onto the scene, which is that world leaders used to have a lot more time to think about what they were doing. And a lot less real-time information and that the glut of this has sort of created a not just a paralysis, but a focus on uh, very short-term things. So I, I talk about the, the Cuban Missile Crisis a lot in the book. Just the idea that the Cuban Missile Crisis happened over 13 days almost feels like an anachronism, right? If missiles showed up on Cuba again tomorrow or, you know, if North Korea put them on some island close to the U.S., Would we give the president thirteen days to figure that out? (laughs) And 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 when you really study it, just how necessary every minute of those thirteen days was. We're we're way too short term. We're way too immediate. We don't create time and space to untangle things and think about them. I I gave a talk today at Google, and I was showing them this sort of ESPN graphic. It's like this was from a couple days ago. ESPN was saying like it was a discussion. It was like who will win the game tonight? And it's like. This is what the news is most of the time. It's not like, hey, uh, let me give you these facts that might you know, pertain to your decisions. It's more like opinions about facts or speculation about facts. And so the, the problem is we're just inundated with information. We don't do a good job managing our inputs and we're bad at really understanding how this glut of information creates fatigue and creates sort of a paralysis that that makes for either poor decisions or very emotional decisions in situations that we really want good decisions and unemotional rational decisions to be made
1: are you saying that the urgency of my phone pinging at me with you know something that i follow on pinterest a hashtag on instagram this news update that email from an online you know retailer that i bought a t-shirt from a year ago happening every 12 seconds like demanding that i respond immediately
0: are you saying these things are affecting my ability to make decisions (laughs) yeah that's exactly what i'm saying and and, i mean that's like so when I'm talking about stillness, I want people to understand I'm I'm talking about this not like, oh, you should go meditate or go on a 30-day silent retreat. I'm saying, like, let's start very small. Let's turn off all these alerts. Like, why are we giving people, like, to be interrupted by something, that's an incredibly valuable privilege, right? The access to go, like, hey, whoever you are, I have something you need to know. That is an immensely valuable privilege, And we just, we turn this over to companies whose sole job it is, is to get your attention and sell it to other people for advertising dollars. So we shouldn't be surprised that, you know, words with friends is updating you or that Instagram is updating you or that Facebook is updating you. I mean, like, I love it where it's like breaking news, cold snap hits East coast of the United States. And it's like, Wait, I don't even live in the East Coast. Why am I getting this information? And, you know, the East Coast of the United States is literally thousands of miles. Like the amount of people that you have hit with this alert for information that only affects a small percentage of them is ridiculous. And so just deciding to go like, hey, I'm going to decide who I give access to my brain to is a huge step forward in terms of getting clarity and simplicity in your life.
1: A lot of the work that you've you've done after Confessions of a Media Manipulator, a, a lot of the work has centered around stoicism. You, you've mentioned it already. What was it that first drew you towards stoicism, right?
0: Yeah, the, the order that I wrote the books in is sort of unrepresentative in that, you know, I was introduced to stoicism before I did anything in marketing. I was introduced to stoicism when I was probably 18 or 19 years old. I was in college. And I went to this conference, and and I asked the, the speaker for a book recommendation, and he turned me on to stoicism. Now, it took a while for these ideas to really penetrate and sort of become what I built my life around. But it was precisely stoicism that I was sort of grasping towards as I was stuck in this kind of... Deeply unethical, confusing, tempting profession. And as I was trying to manage all the inputs that were thrown at me, and being successful early, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, to me, stoicism is kind of like a a set of principles that you live by. And so I'm I, I feel lucky to have learned it early. I feel like I had a, sort of an intervening career before I really focused on writing about it. But it, it's sort of been the philosophy I've tried to live almost my entire adult life by.
1: And it seems that every day, every week, uh, another book comes out that aims to help us deal with modern life. Yet from reading your books, it seems
0: that everything that we need to know was already been thought about thousands of years ago. Yeah. I mean, look, in Ecclesiastes, they say there's sort of nothing new under the sun. Marcus Aurelius is not a big fan of the christians, but he's he said the exact same thing. It's like history is, is the same thing happening over and over again. It's people fighting over money, trying to get famous, trying to get somebody to sleep with them, trying to have a nice, happy life. Like as long as humans have been hu- being humans, or as long as humans have lived in cities, let's say, if you don't want to go back too far, you know, we've been struggling with the same problems. I mean, different technological trends in different environments highlight different parts of that experience. But, you know, whether it's a country that's at war or a country that's experiencing a crisis or it's a country that's, you know, sort of become fat and lazy and, and spoiled, history is more or less the same thing. And the people are going through the same things. And and that's what's so interesting to me is like, as interested as I am in Stoicism and as much as I write about it, I'm always humbled by, and, but also kind of intrigued at just how similar Stoicism and Buddhism is, right? It's right. like, oh, there's not only nothing new in the sense that the ancient world had this figured out already, but it's like different parts of the ancient world figured the same thing out in different ways.
1: And that's the thing that kind of fascinates me. Like, we've just had a baby. Uh, We've got an older one. She's nearly 16. We've just had a baby. He's 10 weeks old uh, this week. Oh, man.
0: Whatever whatever phase you're – like, you have a 10-week-old, that craziness – it's like you could have complained to Marcus Aurelius about that craziness and he'd be like, yeah. "Oh my god, it's so hard." You know, like like not nothing about the experience is the childbirth is fundamentally the same, raising kids is fundamentally the same as as much as things have changed. It's like people are people and problems are problems
1: well exactly and that he came out knowing how to digest food and turn it into poo he came out yeah. knowing how to breastfeed he came out with a walk reflex you know he like we come out with sure. this source code embedded into us and i wonder your thoughts on this you know do you think that with these different views of the world stoics the buddhists the, the the christians the the torah the talmud all these places you know finding similar ways to describe human behavior do you think they're just reverse engineering what we are inherently born with and how we are we inherently behave
0: i guess that it that does go to that sort of fundamental debate about whether we're blank slates or not but the the way i kind of think about it and i talk about this a little bit in the book it's kind of like convergent evolution where there are these sort of species all over the planet that have evolved very similar ways of of talking or, or of doing very similar things. So like bats and birds both fly, but they don't come from the same ancestor. I mean, we they, they all share a common ancestor at some point, but like birds and bats are not like descended from very similar things. They fly in totally different ways, right? right. Pandas and apes both have opposable thumbs, but they're very different. And so I kind of think it's that way with with philosophy where it's like, Different people at different places in the world, you know, from different traditions can look and, and feel like they're talking fundamentally differently. But when you kind of look at like what enlightenment is across, whether it's Christianity or Confucianism or Stoicism or Buddhism or Epicureanism or Hinduism or, or Islam, enlightenment or the highest stage of any of those schools or religions It's essentially like a really calm, wise person who isn't afraid of anything, who doesn't get riled up, who sort of knows what really matters, who's able to laugh at themselves, who's able to see the big picture, you know, who who has some level of sort of. Moral principle uh, that goes sort of the bedrock of how they behave. Usually, they have some sort of they have both moral and physical courage. You know, like it's the same person, right? And and so, like at the core of Stoicism is these sort of four virtues: courage, wisdom, uh, justice, and temperance. Uh, so, like moderation. It's like very hard to find a school that's like courage is bad. You know, wisdom is not not important. Definitely who cares about moderation and then like feel free to treat other people badly. You know, like at the core of it, these are really basic, almost self-evident truths, but they they get to them in different ways and they advise pursuing them in different ways, whether it's meditation or journaling or the rational mind or the you know the sort of non-thinking like there's different ways to get there but they they're fundamentally trying to teach the same thing.
1: You touched on two things there which I you have spoken about at length and I know that you 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 practice them yourselves but why does journaling work? Is that has there been people that have tried to often sat down in lab coats and tried to
0: figure this out have, why does journaling work? <laughs> yeah There is. And it is interesting, like journaling is is associated with all sorts of interesting benefits. It's helped in some cases like combat Alzheimer's or it helps people get through divorce. It helps them deal with traumatic experiences. But really at the core, I think the reason journaling works is that it is a dialogue with oneself, but not in the sort of racing part of your brain. It's able to sort of separate who you are from what you think and look at, like, when you're writing your thoughts down in a journal, you have like a foot and a half of distance from your own thoughts. Like, so you can see them and you realize that they're, they're not real. Like you can be like, you can be writing about how you hate this person. And you're like, do I really hate this person? Does this really matter? Like it gives you, I think it gives you some perspective on your own thoughts. I think that's a big part of it. But from the Stoic side, I think the reason, that journaling and Stoicism are so intricately related is that for the Stoics, philosophy wasn't a thing that you knew. It was a thing that you practiced and that you were running through on a regular, consistent basis. So instead, like people think philosophy is like, oh, I studied philosophy in college, right? Or I have a PhD in philosophy. To the Romans, philosophy was like how you lived, how you responded to individual situations. And so the act of journaling is something that you are doing. And so I think it goes to the core of what stoicism is. So Marcus Aurelius's meditations was not Marcus Aurelius writing down the principles of stoicism for publication. It was him practicing the principles of Stoicism morning and night privately to himself. And that, that's why I try to journal myself is like, I want to be actively just sort of talking through and reminding myself and inching my way towards where I want to end up.
1: It's interesting, you, you, you're putting, you mentioned that, you know, putting a, a foot and a half between yourself and your, your thoughts. Part of my story, Ryan, is that I I actually got quite sick about about five years ago, actually, when we first got um, introduced via email. And I was experiencing episodes of psychosis that manifested as paranoid delusions. And I knew enough to write this stuff down. And I knew enough to have a look at it. And even though I could see that it was irrational, even though that I could see that it was just, you know, cataclysmic doom, my brain still couldn't accept that. You know this thing that I was writing down wasn't a real thing. You know, I, I interesting. It, it was tough, and I and I. It's interesting. Journaling is really powerful. I've, I've recently gone back on meds. I was off meds for about a year and a half, and just before I got back on meds, I, I I was journaling. Right, up. it was about four weeks before the baby got born, and my the page is just full of fear, just full of you know. I'm still you know worried about the same sure. things, but when I look at them now, now that I've been on meds for about ten weeks, twelve weeks, I go, oh yeah. Okay, I can see that's irrational. Sure. But when I was in it, my brain wasn't healthy enough to make that separation, you know. And I, and I think that's – Eckhart Tolle would talk about the, the the pain body and, you know, being able to observe your thoughts or, you know, be able to, yep. you know, be the watcher and be the observer. But when I was ill, I wasn't able to do that. The two things were fused. And it was uh, – I guess I just brought it up to kind of go, oh, yeah, that's the thing I should remember. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what no, it's to- – Totally. And, and look, I think the other thing is like journaling is not this sort of magical panacea that solves the problems in the moment necessarily. Yeah. Right. The fact that you're able to look back at your thoughts, you know, from uh, a couple months ago and go, OK, I was clearly in this place. I couldn't see it at the time. Hopefully that's created an insight that you'll be able to realize next time you start to feel yeah. that way. So it's, it's really a kind of an investment in an ongoing process, mm. right? It's like, Oh, okay. I can look through my journals. I don't do it a ton, but it's like, you can go back through cause I kind of remember them, but it's like, Oh, these are patterns. This is a spiral that I get myself into. This is a thing I do to myself. And I have the ability to not do that if I so choose. Looking back at history and studying the patterns, of eh, Ryan? Yeah, <laughs> studying your, your own life,
1: yeah, absolutely. Throughout your work, you did talk about limiting inputs and for someone who's worked in the media, the rapid, fast cycle of media for nearly 10 years or more now, how the fuck do you do it, man? Because you've got kids, you've got this book business, you do speaking gigs, you write books, you help other people get their books up the charts. How on earth does someone as busy as you do this? How do you find time
0: for stillness? I build my life around it, right? Like this morning, I got up early and the first thing I was doing was writing. It was not touching my phone. It was not checking my email. It was the writing that I had to do for the day. And I had a very short to-do list of about six things that I had to accomplish. So I I did the writing, then my son woke up, we went outside, we took a long walk together. So we sort of got in the right, I got in the right headspace. I, you know, experienced some nature. Then I, I came back, I did my journals, and then I went back into my writing. And I had two things on my calendar today. I had a talk I had to give, and I had this thing with you. So part of it is, as busy as it is, I'm also very, deliberate about what I say yes to and what I say no to. And I try not to overcommit. I try to control my schedule. And I know that when I agree to things, I'm taking time away from the thing that matters, which is like doing the writing that I want to do. So it's I'm very intentional. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm saying no to. And I also know the bad habits that I try to avoid, you know, whether it's watching a lot of the news or gossiping about other people or I try to be very contained about even though I can sort of do whatever I want or set up my life however I want, I try to sort of be very ordered and structured about it all because it is hard. You're you're not naturally productive. You have to create systems that allow that productivity to happen.
1: So say for example, someone's listening to this, then they're most likely they're on a commute. They're like, "That's all well and good for you, holiday. You live sure. on a farm outside. You've deliberately taken yourself outside of a metropolitan city, uh, so you're limiting your inputs of who could drop around for a start. Your bandwidth yeah. for your internet is lower, so you can't be streaming video left and right. If someone has got themselves into a routine, but their routine just relies on being reactionary to their phone, to the to sure. the urgency of their their kids got to go to swimming, this one's got to go to dancing. I've got to get dinner on. I've got to get something out of the freezer for dinner." later on. Bah, 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 bah. I've got no fucking time to sit down and write my thoughts down holiday. Sure. You know, what what would you say to someone as the first thing they can start to work on to unravel their day and try to find that stillness?
0: Yeah, so so first up what I would say is like these aren't like accidental things that that allow me to have stillness. Like I chose to live here in this city in this way because I was prioritizing it. And as much as you might think like, "Oh, that's a very privileged thing to do," Well, it also cost a lot, right? Like I gave up a lot of things to do that. It wasn't free. I'd make up more money and be more plugged in and probably sell more books if I lived in New York City or Los Angeles, right? Because I'd have access to things. But those things would also have access to me. So it's about really deciding what you want and how you want to live your life. W- one essay I would urge everyone to read, Paul Graham has an essay called Maker Versus Manager. And he's like, you got to figure out, are you a maker? Or are you a manager like what do you do and if you're a manager then yeah your your day is mostly going to be meetings and phone calls and you know checking in on stuff but the reality is a lot of people are makers whether they think of themselves that way or not you know they they're a programmer or they're a physical trainer or they're a podcaster, or they're a screenwriter, or they're a movie producer, or you know, they're, or they're a hedge fund trader. Right? Your job is to make things, to create insights, and then to take actions based on those insights in a way that creates value, and. You're going to have trouble doing that if you're jerked around, if you're dis- easily distracted, if you don't have routines and structures and systems in place that prioritize the kind of thinking and the kind of stillness that that requires, right? And so it's it's really important that you make that distinction in your life. But it, to answer your question about little rules, I would say like I didn't touch my phone for the first two and a half hours that I was awake this morning. That's not to say. Oh, it's so wonderful to be me. You were disconnected for the no. I was working, but what I don't do is start my day from a reactive place. So, what Donald Trump tweeted while I was asleep for those two, you know, while while I was checked out, you know, the night and those two and a half hours, I had no idea. But I did know that the night before I went to bed, going, okay, the first thing I have to do is knock this, you know, article out or. If I was a hedge fund trader, maybe it was like, I got to read these 10 public filings or I got to make this chart. Or, you know, if you were a professional athlete, you're like, hey, I got to do this, this workout. I don't touch the phone in the morning. I go right into the main thing of the day, having gotten myself in a headspace that is conducive to doing that thing at an elite level.
1: You're not the first person to have to have talked about that on this show, that, you know, if the first thing that you touch in the morning isn't your lover or one of your children, then something's up. <laughs> I feel totally. Like if you, if you touch your phone before you touch the people you live with.
0: Yeah. And how is that success? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? That's, that's the way I think about it. Like, if success is becoming a slave to my calendar, like, I'd rather not be successful. Right. Like uh, to me, I define success primarily as autonomy. Like, do I get to do what I want to do the way I want to do it? Right. And so this helps me decide what opportunities to say yes to and no to. Like if, you know, I agree to do this thing, and now, all of a sudden, I found that some person's bossing me around. I'm like, well, you know, fuck this. Like, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, like, so I, I kind of think about, like, how do I want my life to be? And I sort of judge the opportunities that I see along those lines.
1: You talked a, a little bit before about slowing down and just giving yourself time to make decisions. And um, in the book, you you illustrate this through, as we spoke about before, the the Cuban Missile Crisis, which really was the world's going to fucking end any second now. Um, I don't think people listening now in 2019 can quite comprehend how knife-edge close we were to utter nuclear annihilation. There would have been nothing left. Nothing left of most of the Northern Hemisphere. And then the rest of the world would have had to figure out how to make food for the next 100 years. (laughs) The nuclear winter would have been long. We may not all be dealing with Khrushchev as JFK, but how can we, when people are pushing us for decisions and pushing us for, you know, how can we not get caught up in urgency? How can we slow things down? How can we hit the slow-mo button on life to give ourselves more time to think about stuff? Stuff.
0: I think that's the ultimate question, right? Most of us are not staring across the ocean at a nuclear power, you know, that's acting aggressively, but we are finalizing a divorce or we're negotiating the the purchase of a piece of property. Or we're trying to deal with a department head, you know, at the company that we created that's that's being really difficult. And what we need to do in those situations is think about it the way Kennedy did, which was sort of calmly, which was rationally, which is with a lot of empathy. You know, he says, like. His advisors are like, This is an unprovoked act of aggression. We need to blow Cuba off the map. And Kennedy's like, Whoa, first off, what are people going to think if we do that? Like, how is the world going to react? Is is everyone going to understand where we're coming from, or are we going to look like the bad guy? And they're like, Well, you know, that's a good point. And then he goes, How are the Russians going to react? Well, you know, they'll probably do this. And he's like, Well, that would be really bad, you know? And then he says, Why do you think the Russians did this? And they were like, well, because they're Russians, you know, and he's like, huh. no, obviously the Russians were trying to accomplish something or they had some logic that made them think this would work. And he's like, we got to think about why they did that. And the the point being, if you could understand where they're coming from, you could then take actions that would you know, still force them to withdraw the missiles. There's no sort of negotiation on that as far as Kennedy was concerned. But he was like, how can I make it clear that they have to do that in a way that doesn't make them hit the big button on their desk that yeah. blows up the world? And so Kennedy realizes, oh, OK, look, the Russians are testing us. The Russians didn't think this was going to work. They kind of hoped that it would, but they knew it was a gamble and they were actually making this gamble from a place of desperation. And so if we re- respond aggressively here and if we respond without a great deal of care, we might end up provoking something that they really have no intention of provoking. Right. And so he he sort of manages to slow things down to think about it. He gives the Russians a chance to think about it. And I think that's really what you see happen. It's like five or six days in Khrushchev's like, oh, yeah, maybe this wasn't a good idea. (laughs) You know, And then they begin to make signs that they're willing to negotiate. And so Kennedy's real brilliance there was sort of the attitude and the approach and the clarity that he brought to the situation. And I think it's hard to find many situations that don't benefit from something like that. Like very few divorces would be, you know, sort of better negotiated if both parties were more irrationally angry at the other side. Right. You know, very few business negotiations would go better if they were more emotional, right? Yeah, and so, you know that's the attitude. We want to cultivate that stillness because, the stakes are high they're not nuclear holocaust high but they are high and we do benefit from clarity and empathy and and deliberateness the description
1: of jfk being in the white house in a room full of people with brass all over their shoulders shouting at him to go for it go for it you know let's nuke them till they glow let's bum back to the stone age and he's like give me one second i'm just gonna go outside and look at the flowers yeah and and he literally like leaves the room of all these you know people thumping their desks on a big beautiful wooden table and goes and stares at the roses for a while like that, that that that's blows my
0: mind, yeah, he goes swimming, you can see even the notes that he took you know he's it, you can imagine someone's like, we gotta you know blow this shit out of Russia like this is our chance and Kennedy is drawing a picture of a sailboat on his notepad. It's not that he's not paying attention, he is paying attention, but the point is. He's not writing, what's history going to think of me? Are they going to like me? How are we going to do in the elections? You know, like, how could Khrushchev have lied to me? He's trying to slow all of that down because Hmm. he knows it's not helpful.
1: Yeah. It's extraordinary to remember that, that even in in that moment, you know, while our adrenaline's firing, while our heart's beating out of our chest, while we're trying to keep the people in the room that want a decision out of us on side, it's super important for us to go, hang on, I'm just going to be reactionary if I move here. What's outside look like right now? What's the air smell like? What do my feet feel like in my socks? You know, (laughs) super, super, super important. It was great to hear you talk about taking a walk with your son this morning and getting a little forest bath. in in the morning time. You speak in the book, Stillness is the Key, about getting in commune with nature. We do in our modern ways of life. I mean, I'm sitting in a four-walled concrete box speaking into a a, a metal microphone made in Germany down an internet line. You know, I am doing everything I can to isolate myself from the environment that I evolved in. What eventually happens if we don't actually get out and hug a tree once in a while? And why is it important to do so?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great point. Yeah, we live these sort of deeply unnatural existences. And then we wonder why we feel so unnaturally unhappy or, or distressed or worried. And you have to go out and you have to be outside. You have to be with other people. You have to find things that you get sort of core fundamental pleasures from. Like, I know it's not politically correct, but like something like hunting, like being out in the woods, engaging in some primal activity that human beings have been finding meaning and satisfaction in for hundreds of thousands of years is deeply refreshing. So look, if you don't want to hunt, maybe you go fishing if you're opposed to fishing. Go make something out of wood, you know what I mean? Or paint a painting. Like you you think about cave paintings. This is tens of thousands of years ago. Human beings were just doing art for art's sake. And the idea that we're going to be 100% focused on our work or, you know, we're going to be, you know, 100% we're all our free time is going to be spent watching television or playing games on our phone. No wonder we're going to feel way out of balance and, and unhappy. We're We're not living the way that we're supposed to be living.
1: Can you get that kind? I mean, fifty percent of the world's population live in cities. The access to the outdoors, the access to actual nature, not a not a landscaped park, sure. like is is quite difficult and economically prohibitive for many people. How can you access this when you when you live so far away from it?
0: Yeah, there's there's parks. I mean, you can go for a run, you can go for a swim. You know, there, there's something like I just went for a swim here in Austin. It was free. I swam at Barton Springs. The only other city that I think has swimming that tops Austin, Texas, is is Sydney. <laughs> but the idea of of like being underwater, or the endorphins of exercise, or sitting in front of a fireplace, you know, like or a campfire, right? Like the, there's so many of these things you can get it from that that I think are deeply important. But look, you can also get it in an art museum. You know, you can also get it visiting whatever the oldest historical ruins or or sort of military fortification of your city is like there there's so many places that you can go and get connected to something sort of distant or beautiful or sort of historical. Uh, so I, I don't know. I just, maybe I don't totally buy the excuse that it's hard. <laughs> I think uh, it's probably never been easier because we do have the ability to travel in a way that that people were, were not able to thousands of years ago. And look, it, as modern as this problem feels, I have a quote from Blaise Pascal at the beginning of the book where he says, like, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. So We've struggled with this for a long time. It was a lot easier for you know a guy in France in the fifteen hundreds to go outside and experience nature, but he's saying like still that that stillness was difficult to access
1: yeah when you speak about you getting outside and, and and being around other people as as someone who has been quite sick in the past, yeah people were the most terrifying fucking thing there was, man. I didn't want to see sure. people. You know, I pulled my trucker hat down and looked at other people's feet so I could walk through the grocery store. You know, It was the, it was the worst. Is it something about just connecting with something bigger than you, realising and, and getting your brain to understand that there are other people around that this is bigger than me, that I am but a small, tiny thing on this massive ball of dirt and water flying through space?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, there's a reason that when we want to inflict real sort of pressure or punishment on inmates, we put them in solitary confinement, Mm. right? Like, so, and I say this as an introverted person who's like nightmare is, is being at a party for more than an hour or two. You still, you, you know, man or woman is an island, right? This is like that being an island is a form of torture that, you know, we're increasingly seeing as barbaric. And yet, People inflict this on themselves, or they make lifestyle decisions that sort of guarantee that's how they are going to be and how they're going to end up. So, yeah, I'm I'm not saying I, I totally get that some people have social anxiety and there's all these different things. I guess what I'm saying though is like you got to feel connected to a larger whole, or or life. I think very quickly loo- feels like it's losing meaning
1: when you are. But I guess we now live in a world where you could live alone. You could just get. In this country, you get Deliveroo, which is a nice, you know, Brazilian yeah. on, a, on a scooter bringing you food from a takeout shop and never actually speak to anyone in your own community. Uh, if you live in an apartment like I do, you know, like, there's nine other families that live here and, like, never actually speak to any of them, not even look at them in the hallway if you wanted, and yet right. have a community online that you can interact with and, and, you know, that has over the last 10 years or so been... You know, becoming more of an issue, and that community online is one that does not operate within social norms. And the, the way you can walk walk around the street and basically, you know, you just be a be an asshole basically online. And that those communities can go from you know certain subreddits. Yeah. or Facebook groups and go all the way to 4chan, all the way to 8chan, and you may you, know, you may feel isolated from the suburb you live in but uh, accepted and loved and maybe even a leader and a lord and an overlord and a moderator <laughs> in some of these places. You know, does that serve the same purpose? Do people feel the same sense of connection when they're in these, these groups of, you know, I guess hate, to be, to be so bold?
0: No, no, I, I think that's actually the problem. I think that's what these groups sometimes deliberately and sometimes unintentionally end up encouraging is that because these people don't have jobs, because they don't take care of themselves, because they don't have thriving real world relationships, they become much more susceptible to the groupthink or the really bad logic or the obvious. It's why they lack the ability to see the, that the emperor has no clothes because they're sort of functioning as a shell of a human being. Like I feel like you could probably, you know, in America we have this sort of, you know, extreme right wing radicalization happening. And what you see is most of these people are, you know, sort of bad with the opposite sex or they're very suppressed about their attraction to the same sex, which is totally fine. But the point is they're not having thriving romantic relationships. They usually did not do particularly well in school. So they're susceptible to sort of like shoddy logic and bad thinking, uh, or bad history. They don't have a good job, right? They don't have any kind of mastery in their life, even of like hobbies. And so, you know, when someone introduces them to sort of like this white supremacy stuff or this sort of incel stuff or these sort of weird manifestos, it's like all their defenses are down and they're very susceptible to it. A person with... A girlfriend and a job at the local power plant. There's a reason that these white supremacy groups are not filled with white women who have three children, (laughs) right? Because she's busy and she has meaning and fulfillment in her life. Even if she's stressed to her gills, you know, she's struggling to make ends meet and has a lot to be angry about at society. You know, she's not spending hours on end in a freaking forum railing about immigrants. She's got like shit going on.
1: Yes, you are absolutely correct, and I—I and I, I was really touched when I was reading in "Stillness Is the Key." When I was really touched about you talking about—I'm going to pronounce it wrongly—Mitfreude. Uh, is that the the German? Yeah. The opposite uh-huh. of Schadenfreude. I didn't know. I only know Schadenfreude from the Avenue Q song, which is brilliant. But I, I didn't know that there was an an opposite. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, if we get eight chan to just do a whole thing about Mitfreude, like to be, to be gr- grateful for the, for the joys of others, would that change the world?
0: I don't know how to fix them, but what I would think about as a society is like we've got to start going. Oh, these are deeply pained, broken but redeemable individuals. Like, look, there there obviously are a certain percentage of them that are so radicalized they belong in jail, just like they're, you know, radical Islamists who deserve to be in jail because they, they can't be saved. But the vast majority of these people are just people who uh, life has kicked around a bunch of times or have made bad choices. And now they're in this deeply vulnerable, deeply sad, almost deeply nihilistic place. And You're not going to get them out of that place by yelling at them and hating them and dunking on them the way we do now on social media. You're going to, you know, we use this word normalization. Like, we don't want to normalize it. Well, actually, that's what we want to do. We want to normalize these people. We want to reintegrate them into civil society, not have them be angry, you know, connected loners on the internet who are like giving each other ideas for how to. Hurt as many people as possible. We want mm. to sort of help them heal that pain. And, and like I'm saying this, I, I, it's not like I have an active plan. It's not like I've been doing anything about it. But, but yeah. the, when, when I think about it, that's what. You know, I'll give you an example. I was walking down the street and Austin has this major homelessness problem. And I've complained about it. Other people complain about it. like I, everyone knows. And I saw this woman, She was wearing yoga pants. She's dressed up very nicely. She dropped off food for this homeless person. And I'm like, that's nice. Every once in a while I do something like that. Or, you know, you give money. You're, you really should. not You're really sort of facilitating the, the lifestyle. But what I thought was fundamentally different, what caught my eye, is she reached down And she patted this person on the shoulder like she squeezed the the man on the shoulder. And again, I'm speculating, but I imagine this guy hasn't been touched Uh, by a non other homeless person in quite some time. Right. Because he's sort of an other and he's sort of gross and he's sort of been cast out from society, even though he's surrounded by people, he's sort of not. He's not one of us, right? Mm. And I was just sort of deeply touched by this gesture. And, and I, what I'm saying is, sort of, we, we need the that analogous gesture. I think that's the only way we're going to solve a lot of these sort of radicalization problems we're facing now.
1: Is to uh, try to see the human behind uh, what is going on and, and and try to understand, as you mentioned what, with earlier before uh, with uh, Khrushchev's, like why why are they yeah. like this? Yeah.
0: Yeah, That's, exactly.
1: It do, does require you to put your own, you know, fortifications of righteous anger away because that does make me feel safe, Ryan. Sure. <laughs> you Obviously, a guy that thinks a lot about the world, you're you're a very busy guy and you do expose yourself at points to, you know, finding ways, that, you know, which directions the world is heading and uh, you've got little kids how do you juggle the things that history shows you might be next versus the world that you, you can see your kids growing into and what you can do about it,
0: man. Yeah. I mean, mostly I just try to, I try to be present, you know, I try to focus on what's in front of me because like, yeah, sure. I do have concerns about the world that, you know, my kids are going to be in and their kids are going to be in or that I'm going to be in, in 50 years. But I also know that's sort of no guarantee. And so I'm not going to neglect this sort of moment in front of me. In exchange for sort of worrying about something, I, I might, I want to take active steps. You know, it's like when I'm walking down the street, and I see a piece of trash, I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to sort of vote for the people I'm going to try to vote to. I want to support the causes that I think are important. I want to write about the ideas that I think people are better off for knowing. But, you know, I think climate change is a great example where I look, I agree it's a problem and I agree we're not doing enough about it. But you see certain people have just sort of, it's almost like, that's become where they're able to project all their sort of general anxiety and frustrations and fears at Mm. and it's almost become this thing that's like consumed their existence and look there are definitely people who are activists about it and that's like their profession so that makes sense but i'm just saying like if your 16 year old is waking up and talking about climate change constantly like chances are like that has nothing to do with climate change and a lot more to do with a skewed perspective of, of priorities.
1: You're talking my language, right? <laughs> <laughs> as someone who has been that 16-year-old, but as a 40-year-old, I uh, yeah, I, I get it. I, I absolutely get it. I'm really loving when you post it, it comes out the last thing at night right before I go to bed. I'm loving Daily Dad. Oh, thank you. Which is uh, an email of the gajillion emails that you write. What drove you to want to wanna talk about fatherhood and want to talk about being a father and, and, and try to find resources and reflections
0: on on fatherhood? Yeah. Well, no, it's funny. So it's it's dailydad.com. It's a free email every day. It's funny. It actually goes out in the morning in the US, but for whatever reason, we can't figure out how to like time it for different countries. <laughs> oh, man, I love and going in, to bed with it. I love it. Well, that's perfect. I wrote it. My thinking is like, you want this to guide your day, but for you, you're sort of concluding the day. So it's awesome that you like it. What, what I found is that I just found like all the parenting books. And there's some good ones out there. There's definitely some bad ones. But the problem is they treat it as this thing that you read like one time and then you got it. Like it's even like what to expect when you're expecting. It's like you read it, but it doesn't take you nine months to read. So you're either reading about things that have already happened or you're reading about things that haven't happened yet. Right. It's like you're not reading it on an ongoing basis. And so I wanted to make Daily Dad something that's like, here, let me give you a thought sort of guided by ancient wisdom, or a story that, you know, that illustrates a psychological principle or a sort of basic parenting insight. Let me just give that to you every day. So it's something that you're doing every day. And it's something that you can get value out of whether you have a, you know, a 10 week old or a 40 year old, because that's the other interesting thing about parenting is that it You never stop being one like it's just it's an ongoing thing and you're always facing sort of new challenges or new difficulties. So I just felt like it was a hole in the market that I, you know, if it existed and I could subscribe to it. I would have done that, but it didn't, and so we made it, and it's been uh, it's been really cool. It's one of my favorite things to write every day.
1: Oh, mate, I'm I'm, I'm loving it. Not just because I've been a I've been a stepfather now for oh, that's
0: one thing. Hey, Ryan, how about some more stepfather stuff? Um, <laughs> uh, that's a good point. Yeah, You're right.
1: I'm on it. So I've been a I my stepdaughter was ten when I showed up, and it, what was interesting is that I, I started being more kind of full time, and I moved in when she was just about eleven. So uh, I had an 11-year-old stepdaughter with exactly one year of parenting experience <laughs> right. um, dealing with the the perils of an 11-year-old challenging me. It was tough, man, and, uh, you know, it was definitely interesting and I learned a lot about uh, about myself. But similarly, you know, when w- w- my wife and I were on this journey of, of welcoming a baby into the world, the last year of our lives, I was looking for dad stuff and all I could really find, all the books were uh, aimed at women totally all the dad stuff was very very kind of nuts and bolts a lot of physics a lot of you know names of hormones uh, a lot sure. of a lot of really kind of tactile is going to happen for this long and then it'll do that and then it'll be over you like real like dude stuff like facts you know but there yeah. was a dearth of like well what do I do with these feelings? You know? yeah. Sure. <laughs> and so interestingly, like my, my mate, Charlie, he's another podcaster here in Australia. Uh, he was having a baby a couple of weeks out and we just started this podcast and when I, and I thought there'd be, there'd be shitloads of dad podcasts. There's us.
0: There's like no, there's none. that there's many none, parenting there's really podcasts, but there's yeah, sure. just like one done by dads. It's me and Charlie. It, it is very interesting. And, and a lot of the dad stuff too, is also very like condescending. It's like an idiot's guide to being a dad, you know, like, it's yeah. like, uh, how to not fuck up your kids, and it's like, well, I'd like to do slightly better than just not <laughs> just not fucking them up.
1: So you've got a few kids of your own. If you could have anything that you would pass on to me, Ryan,
0: <laughs> what have you got? Yeah, that's I. I, I won't. I won't uh, condescend to you because I don't know. I, I only know a little bit about the second problem. I don't know anything about talking to a sixteen-year-old. At the core of Stoicism are these sort of four, those four virtues we were talking about, sort of courage, justice, wisdom, and temperance. And at the core of those virtues, to me, is like the solution to all or any problems, right? Like one of those virtues is the solution to each problem, right? That's sort of how I've come to think about it. Uh, Obviously, there's different ways of communicating it. And there's sort of different definitions of is the courageous thing to stand up? You know, is the courageous thing to keep going? You know, it could be either is the courageous thing to walk away or is the courageous thing to stay in it, even though everyone's, you know, attacking you for it is is the right thing to be kind. Or is the right thing to be firm? You know, is the right thing to forgive or is the right thing to think, you know, to insist on justice, even though it makes you uncomfortable? You know, there's plenty of room inside each one of those things. But when, when my wife and I sort of think about what values we want to teach our kids, like those are the four we're going to be building everything around and on top of
1: mate that is uh, extraordinarily powerful advice i like it very much it's simple it's something i can write on the fridge uh <laughs> just, <laughs> i like it when it's uh i could mate i could talk to you all day um, i appreciate very much that you've chosen to do this uh, with your precious hours of your time brian it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show man thank you so
0: so much mate oh thanks i really appreciate it i'm glad we finally got to do it
1: you got it man have a cracking
0: day man thanks you too
1: that was Ryan Holiday. You can find him online, ryanholiday.net, or you can check him on Twitter, he's Ryan Holiday, or Instagram, he's also Ryan Holiday. A massive thanks to Manish Seti and Pete Williams for the years-long networking magic they pulled to get me into Ryan's calendar, which was a, a feat, and also Rachel Barrett, my brilliant manager and producer of this show, who got me and Ryan in front of laptops at the same time on other sides of the planet. It was quite quite a remarkable thing that she did there big thanks to Andy Maher, my audio bridges, who made this show sound super sweet and Mike Mills also known as Toe Hider who made all the fantastic music thanks for listening that's it that's it for today wherever you are try and stay safe try and look after people that you've never met before because that's the only way we're going to get out of this Well, the only way we're going to get through this to be honest there's no getting out of it is there we really are all in this together. I'll talk to you on Friday. Your ace. Have a cracking week. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.
0: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ